Welcome to Women in the Word. I'm Shelley Davis. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team. I'm happy to be here with you this morning. And I have to start off by giving, making a confession. I love to read. I love to read. I, I'd rather read than watch TV or um, do anything else except possibly walk around outside and enjoy this beautiful fall day. But the reason I'm confessing that I love to read is because I like to read on my e-reader, my Kindle, my iPad. And I know I've had conversations with some of you out there that like to read as much or more than I do. And you're purists. You want your book. You just can't. Misty's laughing because she and I have had this conversation. You just have to have your book. Well, sorry, I just want to read. And when I get on an airplane to go across the world and I can take this tiny little slim thing with me that has hundreds of books in it, it doesn't get any better than that as far as I'm concerned. And as I worked on this lesson the past few weeks, I really was reminded of a book that I read probably a decade ago before I even had an e-reader. Some of you may have read it. It was called, uh, it was a true story called Into Thin Air. And it was the story about an expeditionary summoning expedition uh, to Mount Everest. It was in 1996. And this particular expedition team that summited Mount Everest in 1996, unfortunately, on the way down from the summit, and they did make it to the summit, but on the way down, they were hit by unexpectedly by a very deadly storm. And half of the team did not make it back to the base camp because of the extreme temperatures and the altitude. They couldn't stay up in that altitude and they ran out of oxygen. The leader of that expeditionary team was um, a very experienced Mount Everest climber by the name of Rob Hall. He actually had summited Everest five times before, more than any other non-Sherpa guide. But he was also caught in the storm on his descent. And when he realized that he was not going to make it back to the base camp alive, he took out his satellite phone and he called his wife who was in New Zealand and seven months pregnant with their first child. Now, they spent the last few hours of his life on that satellite phone. They chose a name for their first child. And in the book, the account says they talked about their family's future together without him. His body was actually discovered two weeks later. And two months later, she delivered that baby that they had named that night on Mount Everest. Now, Rob Hall came to my mind as I wrote and worked on this lesson because he was a man that, knowing his time was very short, he shared important words with the most important person in the world. And this morning, as we open up to Luke chapter 21, we see Jesus in a similar situation. He's a man that knows his time is really very short. And what he chooses to do is share his most important words with the people that are most important to him in the world. So turn to chapter 21 with me. We are going to begin reading together in verse 5. Some of his disciples were remarking about, about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen and what will the sign be that they are about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name claiming I am he. 
The time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. And then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. Now, last week, Amy was here with us, and she told us that it was the beginning of Holy Week. We saw Jesus enter Jerusalem, uh, revered and honored as a king on that Sunday. He spends the rest of the week uh, doing two things. He's either praying, going out to the Mount of Olives to pray and spend time with the Father, or he's in the temple teaching, despite the opposition that he sees and has everywhere around him. So as we see Jesus here with his followers in the temple, it's either Wednesday night of Holy Week or possibly very early Thursday morning. There was some dispute on that. But regardless, he knows that he has less than 48 hours to live. And he's going to spend it doing what he loves best, being with his followers. Now, someone that's in the group with him these final hours looks around the temple and simply comments on the beauty of it. And I can't imagine what it must possibly have been adorned with. It had to be stunning. But instead of just chatting about it with them... Jesus seizes the opportunity. Time is short, and he knows it, and so he seizes the opportunity, and he begins to unfold the future for him right here in hopes of preparing his followers, not just because he wants to say, hey, I know what's going to happen. He wants them to know what's going to happen, so they'll be prepared. And he really starts off with a bang right here in verse 7 when he tells them, verse 6 when he tells them, that there's going to be a time that comes when the temple is totally destroyed. Now, to his credit, his disciples don't say, what, are you kidding? How could that be? They simply say, tell us when. We want to know more. They believe him, and they want to be prepared for whatever this catastrophic event is going to look like. Jerusalem in Jesus' day, the Jerusalem that these men know as they talk with Jesus, is a hotbed of political unrest. We've talked a lot about how it's under Roman rule, but, um, you know, the Jews themselves are divided into factions. We have the Sadducees and the Pharisees that are always in a constant power struggle, trying to topple the other. So his disciples who are listening that morning or that evening know that there's a good possibility that what Jesus is talking about could happen happen because of the world they live in. In fact, it's already happened to them twice before. If you remember from our previous studies, you know that the Babylonians came in and conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple in 586 BC. And it happened again under the uh, Seleucid king in 170 BC, Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed. So they're not thinking, oh, that could happen. They're thinking it happened before and it could happen again. And they want to know more so that they can protect themselves and their family. Jesus, however, here knows that the destruction of the temple is really not the only hard thing that's going to happen in the future. So he opens that book of the future that he owns and knows, and he begins to tell them some of the things that they have to look forward to as his followers. And the first thing that he shares with them is really in verses 8 through 11. It's just kind of 
a summary. It's kind of like a flyby overview in verses 8 through 11. And before we go any further, I want to put a little parenthesis in here and to tell you to look down on the bottom of your verse sheet. As Jesus talks about end times, even if you are an eschatological scholar, I can barely even say the name eschatology, but even if you're a scholar, sometimes it gets confusing. So I just put down on the bottom of your verse sheet kind of a one, two, three, four of end times, things that are going to happen. And let me walk you through it here. The times that follow Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven, the times that immediately follow um, Jesus' death that we're talking about here, is called the church age. And that's the period that we're in right now. We are in the church age. The church age is going to end with what we call the rapture of the church. Now, the only place that the rapture of the church is really talked about is in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 15 through 17. And you might want to just jot that down on the side of your outline and go and read it later. It's very interesting. But Paul talks about the rapture of the church, where before the great tribulation begins, believers uh, who are alive then and those who are already dead are going to be taken up to be with Jesus in heaven so that we don't have to endure that seven year period of tribulation that Jesus really talks about here. Um, the seven year period of tribulation, which we talked about when we studied Daniel, will end with the battle of Armageddon. And if Jesus had not returned to stop the battle of Armageddon, probably the whole world would have been annihilated. But Jesus does return at the end of that seven-year period. There's a very dramatic uh, description of that in Isaiah and in Daniel. He returns. He sets up his millennial kingdom. That's Jesus' 1,000-year reign on the earth when all believers will live uh, in total harmony with each other, with Jesus as their king. Now, the end times that Jesus talks about here in Luke, he doesn't talk about the, the rapture of the church here, but he does talk about the times that lead up to the great tribulation. He talks about the great tribulation, and he talks about Jesus' return to usher in the millennial kingdom. And that's where we are here in verses 8 through 11 as Jesus gives us a quick summary flyby leading up to the tribulation. But he tells his followers, before end times actually happen, before we get to that seven-year period of the tribulation, there are going to be some hard things that happen then. There are going to be some deceiving things. There's going to be false messiahs, people that claim to be me all day long, that pop up and you hear about them, uh, and they're going to try to deceive you. And nations are going to fight nations and... Um, conquer each other. But these things are really not the signs of end times, he says here. He tells us what this is, is really just the chaos of living in a fallen world. You know, it's all around us. People don't get along. They have sin. Nations go to war. There is disease and pestilence. That's not the end times. That's just the chaos of living in a fallen world. And that's why he says the end is not imminent in verse 9. And he warns out warns them to watch out that they're not deceived. Living in the chaos of a fallen world does not mean that Jesus is going to be here tomorrow. It just means that we're sinners as we all live together. Um, 
he warns us not to be deceived by all of the chaos of living in a false world. Uh, and it's a great warning for us because, you know, in the last couple of years, I think the world was supposed to end twice, wasn't it? There's a man by the name of Harold Camping who claims to be a biblical scholar. And he said that the world was going to end on May 21st, 2011. And he based it on a mathematical formula that he supposedly developed from the prophecies in the Bible. And I think we say to Harold, oops. Oops, we're all still here after May 21st. Either his math is bad or his uh, uh, interpretation of prophecy has to be bad. The other one was uh, last Christmas. I don't know whether you remember that, but the Mayan calendar was supposed to end the world on December 21st. There were people that weren't going to do their Christmas shopping until December 22nd. Now, I don't know what that had to do with it, if the world was going to end, but that's true. And uh, it's Jesus tells us right here, hey, don't get caught up in that. All of those things are scams. So don't be frightened because we live in a fallen world. But in verses 10 and 11, he actually puts the end times in view, the coming of his kingdom in view for us, because he talks about an accelerated number of catastrophic events. Look at his language there where he says nations uh, against nations, kingdom against kingdom, great earthquakes and famines and epidemics. So as we begin to get closer to the end times, some of these things that are natural catastrophic events or events of the fallen world will begin to accelerate and they will appear appear to happen more frequently. They will be bigger and badder and more often. He even uses apocalyptical language when he says fearful events and great signs from heaven in verse 11. These have to do, these fearful events and great signs that he's calling out here have to do with um, what supernatural cosmic disasters that are actually talked about throughout the scriptures. They're unlike the earthquakes and the famines that we experience now. We have not experienced those supernatural cosmic events yet. Look at a description of them on your verse sheet. Isaiah 13.10 says, The stars of the heaven and their constellation will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And Isaiah 34.4 says, All the stars in the sky will be dissolved and the heavens will be rolled up like a scroll. All the starry host will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the tree. These are things that we haven't experienced yet. Um, but the true end times of the great tribulation will usher in these kind of supernatural cosmic disasters that Jesus calls fearful events and great signs here. But because time is short, Jesus doesn't just give them this quick little overview. He wants to give them more information. And so he does do that in verses 12 through 19. He shares some more. Read that with me. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisoners, and you will be brought before kings and governors, all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. But before... But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourself. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to res resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me. But not a hair of your head will perish by, 
By standing firm, you will gain life. When he says, by all this in verse 12, what he means is before the great tribulation. Certainly there's going to be persecutions and martyrdoms during the great tribulation. But you know what? People before the tribulation, in the times that uh, march up to the tribulation, um, there's going to be some suffering for my followers. All of us as believers are going to suffer when there's disease and pestilence, when nations fight, nations and disasters happen. Jesus' followers throughout the ages up until the Great Tribulation will not be living a life that is free from difficulty. And not only that, during this period of time, some of my followers will be persecuted even to the point of death. Now you can see how important it would be for Jesus to say that to these particular followers uh, when his death is just hours away. These are men that are still expecting an earthly kingdom. They're expecting that Jesus is going to usher in a time of peace and um, where they're going to sit around the king's table as his advisors and his friends. And that is going to happen. Jesus is going to usher in a time of peace and they are going to sit around the table as the king's friend. But it's not now. It's not going to be until after the, the great tribulation and Jesus returns for the second time. Until then, his followers are going to suffer. But, you know, he also tells them that this suffering is not going to be without purpose. Suffering uh, by Jesus' believers brings about great things because when believers suffer, What happens? Jesus is preached. It's a great opportunity for followers to be witnesses when they're suffering and persecuted. There's a gentleman that's in an Iranian jail right now for his faith. And I've seen his name um, on the news over and over again for his faith. Now this is a man that would probably never be on the news. But because he's being persecuted, he is on the news and he's absolutely able to say that the reason is because he's a follower of Jesus. Uh, In fact, in a sermon a couple of weeks ago, Cody mentioned the fact that these disciples, some of whom had previously denied Jesus and deserted him after uh, the resurrection, they were all martyred for him. They were great witnesses to the truth as the Messiah, that Jesus is the Messiah. Because, you know, I don't know anybody that's willing to suffer and die for a lie. But fortunately, Jesus' followers will suffer and die for the truth that he is the Messiah. As believers throughout the ages suffer for their faith, their faithful suffering has purpose. It points people to the truth. Jesus also encourages, and this is a verse that I love here, encourages his listeners not to worry about defending himself when this defending themselves when this time of persecution comes. Don't worry about what you're going to say because I'm going to give you the words to say it. I was actually reading about the Iranian pastor that I was talking about, and it said that they took him out of his jail cell every day. And said, we're taking you to kill you unless you renounce Jesus. And so every day, he didn't know whether they would actually do it that day. I don't know about you, but I've read stories about people that were persecuted and said, if you don't renounce your faith in Jesus, you will be killed. And I've wondered... Would I have the courage to do that? What would I do? Would I crumple in fear? And Jesus tells you and I both here, we don't have to worry about that. When that moment comes, Jesus is going to be the one that gives us the words to speak to those that are our captors and our tormentors. He's personally going to be there with us. 
Now, verses 18 and 19 here, we talked about this a little bit in the leaders' meeting earlier. There's some disagreement among theologians about the meaning of verses 18 and 19 when it says, but not a hair on your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. Let me tell you what that does not mean. Definitely does not mean this morning. It cannot mean that you earn your salvation by martyrdom. That if you allow yourself to be martyred, that's how you gain your salvation. Because we know that our salvation is by faith alone, whether we're martyred or not. This is what Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 on your verse sheet. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself. It is a gift of God so that no one can boast. Our salvation is truly by faith alone, not by the works of martyrdom. If we take these two verses together, we can know that they probably have one of either two meanings. Either these two verses apply to those people who become believers during the Great Tribulation and will actually live through the Tribulation and see Jesus come on the clouds to rescue them. And then they will walk into the Millennial Kingdom with not a hair on their head harmed and they will have stood firm and saw, had the reward of seeing Jesus uh, return at his second coming. Or... Jesus could mean here that the gain of eternal life for all of us, even if we're persecuted to death and leave our, lose our physical lives, the gain of eternal life is going to vindicate the loss of our physical life through persecution. That's exactly what Paul is saying in Philippians 1.21 when he says on your verse sheet, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, in verses 20 through 24, Jesus begins to talk about the destruction of Jerusalem, which is kind of how he started this conversation. Now, the destruction of Jerusalem during Jesus' time as he looked forward was actually going to happen twice. From our stands today, we only see it one more time in the future. It was going to happen in 70 AD by the Roman army and again during the Great Tribulation uh, when Jesus returns for the second time. And what this is is a great example of how prophecy can have both a near future fulfillment and a far future fulfillment. Because when he talks about the destruction of Jerusalem, he knows it's going to happen twice. Now... Um, verse 20 says, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that it is near desolation. They let those who are in Judea flee out to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment in fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and be taken as prisoners to all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles. Now Jerusalem's first destruction in 70 A.D., as I said, is at the hand of the Roman army. It's after that that the Gentiles will begin to rule over Jerusalem and that will continue until Jesus returns to set up the millennial kingdom. The destruction of Jerusalem... um, Uh, the first time differs not only in severity but in type. The destruction of Jerusalem before the 
second coming of Jesus is going to be supernatural. So the first time it's by the Roman army that comes in and does what Roman armies do, which is wipe out everything they physically can. The second time God is going to be a part of the supernatural destruction of Jerusalem. He's going to direct it for the sake of warning unbelievers and calling them to repentance. Look at verses 25 through 32 with me. There will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable, look at the fig tree of all, look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. These are the supernatural events that will destroy Jerusalem the second time. These are part of the seven-year tribulation. And what these supernatural events do is they climax with the return of Jesus that we see here in verse 27. He's going to return in the clouds. It says the same thing from the uh, Old Testament that we read in our homework uh, in Daniel, clear through to Revelation. He will return with great power and great glory to establish the kingdom of God on the earth. Jesus is describing his own return here for his followers as it ushers in the millennial kingdom. Now Jesus finishes his description here of these things that are going to come with a parable about the fig tree. And the fig tree itself testifies that summer is near by sprouting leaves. It's its own testimony. It begins to sprout leaves and testifying that summer is near. And just like a fig tree that can testify that summer is coming, prophecy can also give us reliable information about the future. And that's what this is. This is prophecy told to us by Jesus. The coming of God's kingdom should not be a shock to anyone who knows God's prophecy, which is why we're taking the time to try to sort through it this morning, even though some of it is complicated and confusing. We want to know about the coming of God's kingdom, and prophecy points us to that. But it only points us to it if we know it, if we try to understand it, and we look around and observe what's happening. We have to be taking in the events that are around us. And Jesus' prediction in verse 32, where he says... um, Let me find it again. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until these things have happened. His prediction here is that if you are alive when these supernatural events begin to happen, get ready. Because it's not going to be very long before you look up and see me coming in the clouds to bring my uh, kingdom. The end is going to come quickly once these supernatural events begin to happen. Jesus finishes uh, his lesson on things to come here with some great words for all of us. Let's read them in verses 34 through 36. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. 
And that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen. And that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. You know, this is an encouragement for all of those people that are sitting at Jesus' feet that day in the temple. Hearing these things pour out of his mouth thinking... Oh my goodness. It's also an encouragement for all of us today to do one thing, and that is to stay alert. You know, the scripture tells us we don't know the exact day or the exact hour that Jesus will return. And because of that, we can't get caught up in just the day-to-day drudgery of life, the things that come and go without looking around and being prepared, that this could be the day that um, those signs begin to happen and our Lord Jesus comes back. We need to be prepared and alert to keep our life in order and be ready for that day. I don't know, how many of you have seen the movie Captain Phillips? It's been out for a few weeks. It's a great true story about the rescue of this captain of a merchant ship that was taken uh, hostage by Somali pirates. And um, the, the true story is that after he's taken hostage, our military shows up with ships and Navy SEALs to rescue him. It doesn't look like everything they're trying to do works. And so eventually the plan is that these three snipers are going to lay on the deck of a boat for hours and try to uh, prevent the pirates from killing the captain. They are going to have to, as snipers, kill the pirates before that happens. And what it requires, as I watch that, it requires an extreme alertness down to this minuscule opportunity that all of them have to pull the trigger at once to kill these three pirates um, all together. These Navy SEALs, as they laid on the deck of that boat, didn't have the opportunity to even blink. They couldn't blink. They They had to be peering every minute at that one opportunity that they had. They had to stay focused and stay alert. And that's exactly who we need to be as we learn about what the end times look like from Jesus and we begin to watch and wait and pray for that day to happen. We can't blink or we're going to miss the signs that um, signal the Lord's return. Lessons on the future and the end times are not meant to scare us. Really, they're meant to prepare us. I've talked with people recently that were a little bit frightened by the end times. We don't have to be frightened. Jesus tells us. He warns us right here not to be afraid. Simply be prepared. And as we look to the future, all we need to do is stay alert and guard against complacency in our spiritual lives. Watch and wait and pray. Now, when I saw that movie, Captain Phillips, all I could think about was those men laying on the deck with their eyes focused on that one opportunity that they had, that something on their bodies had to itch. They had to have wanted to scratch their head or their nose or whatever, but they could not do that. They were disciplined to the point that they blocked out the mundane things going around them to stay focused on that. And that's what we have to be. We have to be disciplined enough to not let those itches in our life distract us from watching and waiting for Jesus. Okay, so let's move on to chapter 22 and read verses 1 through 5 with me. 
Now the feast of the unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. So the Passover celebration is just a few hours away, and for once, the religious leaders of the nation of Israel have finally united. Unfortunately, they've united for the cause of evil. They want Jesus dead. And even one of Jesus' own disciples, Judas, that has sat with him and walked with him and talked with him, wants him dead also. And normally, all of these people would be at odds with each other. Judas would be at odds with the religious leaders, and the religious leaders would be at odds with each other because they all are rivals for power and prestige and following. And those things have kept them segregated into different factions that up until now have had very little common ground. But you know, it's interesting to me that corrupt motives and evil desires can be common ground for people. It can serve to unite them um, in evil ways, including Jesus, including Judas. Now, Judas was one of Jesus' chosen followers that had done an interesting thing. He had given Satan an open door here. He had given Satan the opportunity that he had been waiting for. If you read the Gospel of John, John gives us a little bit more information about Judas's slide down that slippery slope into evil. But Luke simply points out here that Satan was waiting. Satan was just flat waiting for the opportunity. So when Judas takes his eyes off of of Jesus and puts them on his own selfish ambitions he didn't want what Jesus wanted he wanted what he wanted and he was going to get it any way he possibly could Satan's waiting for that and he grabs him you know Peter had his own moments with Satan we see that at the end of this chapter and I'm sure that he was probably thinking about both his experience with Satan and Judas's when he wrote this in first Peter be alert And of sober mind, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Peter knew that from personal experience. Uh, And Satan found someone to devour in the person of Judas. Luke's account here is pretty simple. Satan entered him. Now, demon possession had been pretty rampant already during Jesus' day when Jesus walked on the earth. And Judas's demon possession is by the chief demon of them all. And so Judas, what he does is he takes the initiative here with Satan's help that allows the betrayal to actually take place. You know, it's ironic to me, but it was also so encouraging when I studied this to think that even though Satan thinks this is his moment of victory, he thinks, man, I have done it now. I have gotten one of Jesus's own disciples to betray him. Um... Jesus really triumphs in the end. As Satan takes part in Jesus' death, it's actually his own demise that he's planning because it's at the cross that Satan is finally defeated. Look at Colossians 2.15 on your verse sheet. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. You know, by planning Jesus' death and leading him to the cross, that's not a victory for Satan. It's actually his own defeat. 
At the cross, Satan finally loses. And our lesson from Jesus' betrayers this morning is uh, pretty simple, that personal ambition and selfish motives are the top two ingredients for uh, disaster in our relationship with God. Just think about it. These men, the chief priests and Judas, they had the opportunity. They've been waiting all their lives for the living God to walk into their midst. And when they did, they were bl- when he did, they were blinded by their own personal ambition and selfish motives so that they did not recognize him. And then their personal ambition and selfish motives opened the door for evil to wreak havoc in God's kingdom. You know, we may think today that we have a close walk with Jesus, and maybe we do. But even in the midst of whatever our walk is with Jesus, one thing we always need to check on is our motives, our personal ambition and our selfish motives, even if we're close to Jesus today. Now, the Passover has arrived here as we're in chapter 22, and uh, Jesus gives Peter and John specific instructions about where they're going to celebrate it, and he sends them out to make the preparations. But let's read about the meal itself, beginning in verse 14 of chapter 22. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is mine, is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The first thing that Jesus says to his men as they sit down to celebrate the Passover meal together is that he's had a great desire to eat this meal with them. Jesus loves these men. He loves to be with them. His final hours, this is what he would want to do, is to be with this men. This is his final opportunity to be with those people that believed in him first. That believed in him first. They're the ones that said, yes, Lord, you are the Messiah and we get it. They're the ones that believed his message about the kingdom to come. Above all of Israel, these are the men who did that. They had answered his call for radical discipleship for the last three years. He's excited to be with them. He tells them that this is, however, the last Passover that he is going to eat until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. You know, there's a lot of things in the Old Testament that point to Jesus and the kingdom of God. And the Passover is actually one of those great things. The Passover had had its first fulfillment when the nation of Israel had left Egypt in captivity for the promised land. But the Passover for the nation of Israel is truly going to be fulfilled when God's people... When they are ushered into the safety of the millennial kingdom at Jesus' return. That is going to be when the nation of Israel finds their true safety and their final rest. The next Passover that Jesus will eat with his disciples will be when it's fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. When he sits with the nation of Israel and thinks you are finally safe. Look at Revelation 19.9 on your verse sheet. 
Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. That's going to be the next time that Jesus sits down with the nation of Israel to celebrate a feast. In verses 19 and 20, Jesus uses the common elements of bread and wine that were really part of every meal, but they were also part of the Passover meal symbolically to represent his body and his blood as the sacrificial offering that in just a few hours is going to be put on the altar and made on behalf of Israel and the world. The reason for that is he truly is the Lamb of God. So he is going to be on that altar with his body and his blood. Look at John 1.21 on your verse sheet. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus symbolically gives us symbols of that atoning sacrifice in the bread and the wine as they eat it together at the Passover meal. He also reveals here um, that the new covenant is going to be ushered in by his death and his blood. Now covenants in scriptures have to do with promises that God has made. And all of these promises in, in the scriptures that God makes are ratified or instituted by a blood sacrifice, by a blood sacrifice. Some of the covenants in the Old Testament you're probably familiar with. There are many of them. One of them is the Abrahamic covenant. There's the Davidic covenant. There's the Mosaic covenant. And, of course, these were promises, as you can tell, that were made to Abraham and David and Moses. Some of these promises were conditional. Some of these covenants were conditional. God did one thing and the people did another thing. Some were unconditional. The new covenant that Jesus is introducing here to the nation of Israel uh, and to us replaces the Mosaic covenant that God made with Israel when they left Egypt for the promised land. And this covenant that Jesus inaugurates with his death provides regeneration for God's people. It provides the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and it anticipates the millennial kingdom where Jesus will reign. Look at Jeremiah 31 on your verse sheet that talks about the new covenant. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. That was the Mosaic covenant, and it was conditional, as you can see, and on their obedience, and they broke it. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. This is the new covenant that the nation of Israel had been looking forward to and waiting for. And it is going to take effect through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, along with uh, this new covenant that Jesus introduces, he also gives a command in these verses. His command in verse 19 is, Do this in remembrance of me, meaning eating the bread and eating the wine. And what he does here is give us what I'm sure you all recognize is our um, Holy Communion or the Lord's Table. He gives new meaning to these common elements of unleavened bread and wine. And what he wants us to do with them is use it as a memorial celebration of his death as we wait for his return. A memorial celebration. You know, um, 
Veterans Day is November 11th. And on Veterans Day, President Obama will go out to Arlington National Cemetery and to honor the people that have fought in our wars and died. And as a memorial celebration, he will praise a wreath there. It's a pretty moving celebration. uh, celebration every year on Memorial Day. And that's what we're given here in these common elements of bread and wine. It's a memorial celebration for us to remember what Jesus did for us. But even more than that, it allows us to watch and wait for his return because we know that's the next step uh, in his work for us. Look at 1 Corinthians 11.25 on your verse sheet. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this Cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, sadly, even as the disciples are sitting with him and they're soaking in all of this incredible information about his death to come and uh, the sacrifice that he's going to make for them that that ushers in the new covenant, uh, these men that Jesus loves begin to argue and bicker and talk about things, um, about the new kingdom. What they're really arguing and bickering about is they're thinking, okay, the new covenant, that means the new kingdom. We need to figure out right now who's going to be the secretary of state and who's going to be the financial advisor and which position is more important. That's what they're doing. Um, Let's read Jesus' response to them in verses 24 through 29. Also a dispute rose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred on me. So that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. You know I think Jesus kind of jumps in in the middle of their argument here. To tell them that they're acting like pagans. You know because what they're doing is what pagans do. They lord it over each other. They jockey for position and power. Because in the pagan world and pagan governments. That's all there is. Is power and position and prestige. But Jesus corrects their idea of his kingdom. His kingdom is going to be different. In the coming kingdom where Jesus rules, the rules and the rulers look different and they act different. The rules and the rulers in Jesus' kingdom do not seek to honor and glorify themselves. In Jesus' kingdom, they do the same thing Jesus did. They serve others. Even now, while they wait Jesus' followers should begin to live out that leadership that Jesus has exemplified. His personal example of humility and service rather than pride and prestige. You know, John in his gospel illustrates this point by washing uh, the disciples' feet because that's truly the work of a servant. But you know, I think Jesus is so kind here because he doesn't just stop with uh, admonishing them about their pagan ideas here he goes on to bless them he goes on to say you know you have it wrong now but let me tell you you are going to have a role in my kingdom you are going to sit at the king's table in Jesus' kingdom Um, he tells them that they are actually 
going to be his vice regents to the Messiah, ruling the nation of Israel in the millennial kingdom. And that's an honor they've received because of their faithful devotion to him in the last three years. They have, above all the rest of Israel, believed him and followed him. And so their future in the kingdom is secure. Jesus's, uh, Luke's description of Jesus' last meal with his man is kind of a poignant and bittersweet one. These are his last hours. He starts off this meal by saying to them, I'm so glad to be here with all of you. This is the only place I'd want to be. And then he tells them these really important things that I know he can hardly wait for them to know. He's trying to prepare them. But in the midst of that, they get caught up in um, some difficult things, some, some things about... Um, uh, their greatness and, and uh, Peter's eventual desertion of him. So it's a meal that's mixed with a lot of different emotions, I believe, for Jesus. I think in this last meal, he, he actually himself gives us the lasting lesson that we need to take away from the Last Supper. And it's in verse 19 where he says, Do this in remembrance of me. Our lasting lesson uh, from the Last Supper is that we should focus on the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's really what he's saying to us here. Don't just focus on what you get out of this, the benefit that you get, whether you're going to be a king in the future kingdom, whether you're going to sit at the table of the king or not. Focus on the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Every memorial service I've been to in the last few years has always had a slideshow that really give us the essence of that purpose. It shows us the people that they loved and loved to be around. It shows us the things that they loved to do. And as we close today, I want to encourage all of us to think back over everything we've learned about the person of our Lord Jesus here in Luke and make that slideshow in your head and to really think about the person that Jesus is, to capture the essence of our Lord Jesus in your mind and play it often, play it often. Don't just think about what we get from our Lord Jesus, but let's honor him by remembering his person, remembering his death, remembering his sacrifice, remember his teaching, and remembering his love. All of us need to take time to remember our Lord Jesus. Pray with me. Father, you are good and gracious. We love you. We love um, our Lord Jesus who has died for us. Father, I do pray that we would do exactly what Jesus encourages us to do in these scriptures, which is to remember his person um, and do that often. I thank you for these women that love your truth, that are here to be changed by your truth. I'm asking for your hand of favor and blessing on that desire. Let us leave here safely and return safely next week. I pray this in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus. Amen.